1: And welcome back to Mads World. I'm your host, Mads, and I hope you've been enjoying the show so far. If you have, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as it's the simplest way to help out the show, or find me on social and tell your friends. This week, I'm joined by author, speaker, ghostwriter, content creator, and stigma shaker of the best kind, Ali Hensley. As a teenager, Ali discovered that she had been born with a rare condition. Maya Rokitansky-Kuster-Hauser syndrome or MRKH, resulting in the absence of a womb and a vagina. Discovering her infertility just months after her sweet 16, Ali had a job to do, create a vagina from scratch. What followed was a life of destruction, abuse, and as she says, a societal head tilt asking, do you look like Barbie down there? After recently writing her debut memoir about sexual hang-ups, bad date blunders, and relearning what school never taught her, she decided to smoke out the shame by telling her story to the world. Now, Ali is on a mission to debunk the myths around what it means to be a woman. In this episode, we discuss what MRKH is, the options presented to those with the syndrome, the feelings that one might experience after diagnosis, MRKH and fertility, and the importance of options and what it can mean to be a woman. Hello, Ali! Hi man. It's lovely to kind of meet you. So great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for, for jumping on and, and talking about such an interesting topic. Before we jump into our chat, I just have a couple of questions to ask you to help our audience get to know you a bit better. And first up is what has been keeping you busy lately?
2: Oh god, what hasn't been keeping me busy lately? So I'm a <laughs> sucker I'm a sucker for a list, so I love being busy. You yeah, I freelance as a freelance writer, and that's a new thing for me. So I'm trying to break a new career just in the last year, post, post-corporate life um and I finished writing my memoir last year so I've secured an agent so we're busy we're like we're really busy getting ready to pitch it to publishers it's a it's a it's a process it's a process
1: oh my god that's so exciting yeah
2: it's it's huge it's been a lifetime in the making um you know one year in the writing and I just it's something I've always dreamed of and I know that's really cliche
1: no, it's awesome.
2: Yeah, like telling my story and getting an agent, which I know is insanely hard, so I'm yeah. very grateful for that. So with, with trying to sort of pitch a book and freelance and just live and be happy as well as it can, can be, it, keep, it keeps you busy, I guess.
1: <laughs> and apart from writing, obviously, what else are you passionate about? Do you know what I think? I think because I lived in Australia for 15 years
2: and I came back to the UK after, I'm I am half English, half Aussie. But I came back to the UK after the pandemic. And despite coming back to the country that I was born in, I'm literally trying to crack a new life. Yeah. And that takes like, I seriously underestimated the adjustment despite moving home, like literally sleeping in my childhood (laughs) teenage bed, which can kind of like upset me when it comes to thinking, am I like a proper grown up? Um that's been so making like just making new friendships like I'm really trying to build a network over here because I do work still Aussie hours with some clients so I do need like I just need in person people
1: yeah for sure I mean definitely socialization is one of my passions as well i think starting the podcast as well and getting to meet so many cool people is a massive oh, win so <laughs> i just i thought then like
2: i'm actually trying to you know admire anybody who creates a podcast obviously from scratch so i'm in the throes of trying to understand because i want to launch a podcast this year which i think will be really really cool but, yeah, yeah awesome it's, it's exciting.
1: Lot. That is really exciting. It's so much work, but it's really rewarding, so I hope you love it.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm going to use you as my benchmark for success, right?
1: <laughs> oh, that's so flattering. Thank you. My my next question is what is your funniest or your best date story? It's something we always do on this podcast because at its core Mad's World is a dating podcast and then feminism, love, life, everything. So, I want to know your funniest date story. Okay, so I was reflecting on this
2: with a friend the other day that I thought if making a vagina wasn't hard enough that was nothing in comparison to the Bondi dating pool oh, and God. dating apps it's just tragic because no one gives you the rules but apparently they, there's lots of them and um, I just it was it was a, it was absolutely some belters and this is the thing about dating apps right or anything we are such an instant culture society now I think, you know, we want food, we go to Uber Eats, we want a movie, we go to Netflix, we want a shag or love, we'll go to a dating app. But it's all kind of easy come, easy go. And I think for me, like, of course, I have some really funny, straight, quite hair-raising choices, such as One Night Stand, Unable to Remember Name. <laughs> Maybe I didn't even ask the name. It was one of those Sundays in Bondi. Classic. Love that. and <laughs> um, I did obviously choose to go through his wallet when he was in the bathroom to find out <laughs> to find out his name. But the thing is, his bank card had, like, Mr. G, and he clearly would never have introduced himself. He could have introduced himself. I don't know. Like, who knows? Anyway, so that happened. And also the times, like, when you know how, like, as girls, we really try to overanalyze every situation, but apparently, like, ghosting is a thing. And so, you know how you just, like, I remember desperate attempts to reconnect with a ghoster yep. I think at one point all I had was how is your dog because <laughs> I knew his dog had been very poorly god bless the dog now he's since gone to heaven
1: but oh god so you you had to ask him how's your dog is it just something to talk to I him had about nothing
2: he clearly didn't want me he clearly didn't like me at the time we are we do speak now actually quite is quite a funny story I've met up with a girl a few weeks ago and we ended up dating him we both dated this random guy that's what Bondi is it's like an incestuous love fest
1: oh same as London
2: is it okay <laughs> yeah <good>. oh yeah <laughs> sounds I think it's just any like key city right it's just crazy but on a positive spin it wouldn't necessarily be like a like a belter story but it was one that I really think it's worth showing for a happy ending and not that type of happy ending. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, last year, I nailed my first and only kind of deal with an agent for my book, which is, I know. so well done. So happy. Waited my life to do that. And I was actually in Liverpool at the time visiting my boyfriend. And I didn't think that we were going to have that meeting that day. And I ended up having it. And... I've always done life solo, even with boyfriends, they didn't want to know about my diagnosis with MRKH, they didn't want to talk about babies, they didn't want to talk about mental health, it was just it was off the table. And this is the first time my diagnosis been on the table. And so when I got that, and I came downstairs, and there was all like these poppers and like balloons and celebration and things. I actually did put a reel on Instagram because unless it goes on Instagram, it's not real, right? <laughs> it's, not, it's not good enough. Um, and I just put it on there because we were, had this amazing evening out, like I was treated like a queen. And I just thought my 17-year-old self, my 20-year-old self, my 30-year-old mm-hmm. self would never have felt that that would ever been possible. And I yeah. thought it was so poignant for like the women and girls who have a trauma story. Mm -hmm. To know that the good stuff can come, you know, Mm -hmm. there is an opportunity for it to come. And I think with the with that evening in Liverpool, I just sat there and I got quite teary because I thought I thought one day I was going to like I didn't think I was going to make it, Mm -hmm. let alone turn it around into a book, into this really special situation. So it's probably the best day of my life.
1: Oh, thank you so much for sharing that story. That is so uplifting and hopefully it can help someone out there listening who's who's gone through something similar. I'm really looking forward to our chat because you got in touch with me about MRKH, which I'm not even going to try and pronounce because I'm not going to do it justice. So I'm going to ask you up front for you to take our listeners through it. What is MRKH? And I'm going to refer to it as that for the rest of the podcast because I don't want to get my knickers in a twist trying to say it.
2: Do you know what? And I'm just, you know, I'm I'm super grateful, first of all, for anyone having the intrigue and you pronounced it beautifully. And so many people, bless. It's the most four annoying letters to advocate for. It's so unglamorous. and it's They don't so roll racist. off the tongue, do they? <laughs> do you know, it really doesn't. And in Australia, yeah. we have got My Kitchen Rules and everyone's going, what's, you know, what's My Kitchen Rules? And I'm just like, it's MRKH. Um, it stands for, it stands for Meyer-Rokitansky-Kausterhauser Syndrome. So it was founded after the four male physicians um, back yonks and yonks and yonks ago. Mm-hmm. And it is a congenital condition, meaning it's present at birth. And so it affects one in five thousand women, and it happens during the first seven to eight weeks of gestation. So I'm like plonked in my mother's womb, and Mm -hmm. by the seventh, eighth week, all our kind of vital, necessary organs are starting to form. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: as genetics are kind of like going along the pothole, I have you know this massive dip at my reproductive system. So I have two ovaries; they were good, they were made, and because I have um, ovaries, estrogen was firing, which is why I have boobs and curves and everything external would be typical. And I'm kind of quoting like typical because I hate normal and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, of a female, but my uterus, cervix, and vaginal canal did not form. But because from the outside, you'd never know, it wasn't actually something you'd, you'd pick up at birth. And it presented because I didn't have my first period which is kind of sort of true because I did actually try to have sex before that and it's only something I've started talking about recently because I felt kind of like (gasps) but um you know when you first have sex you never know if it's right or wrong and I just figured it didn't work
1: and I guess you're just sort of new to everything at that at that age and you think you think anything's normal because you don't know any different.
2: You, you can't sort of picture something so extreme when there is nothing, nothing to compare it to. And I did go to the doctors and I had all the tests and stuff, and it was a very invasive um, sort of procedure, just figuring out that my vaginal yeah, canal was sorry. essentially, oh, thank you. But it was the length of a fingernail. And um, so at sort of 16, you know, in the age where we are taught or expected to, whether it be through literature, TV, you know, peer groups school, whatever, you know, it's the rite of passage to adulthood will be through, you know, potential motherhood and partnership, you know, you will have sex, you will carry a baby, and they're your fundamentals. So when you're told at that age of kind of self-esteem and identity, um, it has the absolute, or did for me, the ability to derail me. So, um, it is a unique condition because of its name, it isn't so common per se, but we do sort of fit into the umbrella of, you know, sexual disorders and, and, and things like that. And I know that we'll probably go on to talking about the treatment, but yeah, MRKH, it's a doozy, mayer rokitansky Kalsterhauser hauser syndrome, um, but yeah, and it's so yeah. great to talk about it because it's obviously
1: not many people know about it and yet it is actually quite a stark thing. Mm -hmm. And honestly, power to you for for reaching out and wanting to speak about it. And I know that you've written all about this in your memoir as well, which I just think is absolutely brilliant. So good on you. So when you were saying it's obviously something that happened to you from birth and then your actual journey began with it a bit later in life, once you found out you had MRKH what were the options that you're presented with? So, obviously, as you mentioned, there's different there's different things that it means for you and your future. What were the, the next steps after being diagnosed?
2: Well, fortunately, because I was diagnosed in the UK, and we know that you know the, we have the NHS system, which is a fairly kind of streamlined in certain ways. But in, in in referral, I I did get into one of the best hospitals in London, and I was given the option literally for going to that hospital one month after diagnosis, I was kind of like in that white noise, numbness. I mean, I was a child, sat with her mother and father being told. I can't even remember, to be honest, what I was told. I just remember, I just remember just absolute white noise and devastation, but I didn't know why I was devastated, kind of. Um, And then I went to the hospital and they said, there's two procedures we can follow to make a vaginal canal or Vaginal lengthening. That is dilatory therapy, which is basically tubes of various sizes that you start from small and you go to large over time. And that involves inserting that tube into the vaginal canal that you have in existence. For me, as I say, thumbnail, nothing. Um, And then you gradually, over time, for 20 minutes, morning and night, you push this tube into your body and you push it very hard because you're stretching the muscle mass or or the tissue that you have there, basically like like trying to sort of mold over time. You're basically having to mold your body or surgical um, options. But in, well, it would suggest that 95% of people probably don't need to go down a surgical path. I'm not an expert, but that was a stat. And even if people have surgery, they will have to dilate. And I think a lot of people think, Oh, if I go to surgery, I kind of go to sleep, wake up, and boom, I'm a woman, and it's it's so and I know we want quick fixes, but it it's the last diagnosis that gives you a quick fix
1: and hearing that as a teenager or a child as well, I can imagine that's pretty terrifying.
2: My trauma only kicked in when I sort of understood maybe five to ten years later what had happened, and i I was never forced to go into that treatment, but as a sixteen year old you know just sixteen um To lie in a bed and have doctors and nurses help you push objects into your body and it hurt and it was embarrassing and I felt dirty and grimy and awful and I remember when I left, I I had been in hospital for three days, they do like an inpatient, it's basically like a demo and then you go home and you finish the process and it took me nine months to create my vagina from scratch and I'm... I I was walking through Paddington train station with my mum and I literally, and I'm not being a drama queen, I literally fell to my knees sobbing because I thought, what the fuck have I just had to do to my body? And that was the beginning of a 20 year, huge destructive path. I mean, it was literally harm, self-harm by consent. I was literally having to get, and I think for me, I'm probably going to dovetail all over the place. I'm so sorry. That's okay. When you do that to your body, mm. you quickly associate pain with progress, sex with shame, mm-hmm. because you're not you're not expanding the the experience. You know, I'm not being in a fairy tale. Like sex is not one big movie, but I think to do that, the pain and the shame was something that embedded into my brain pretty much for decades.
1: Is it something that you would recommend? To other people? Like, if you could go back and change change what happened, would you? I wouldn't change it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it's hard to say for others. It's like, so it's hard their th- own choice. Yeah. It,
2: it is their own choice. My only thing mm-hmm. that I would say is something that we've learned through the years of advocacy, which I've done internationally for a long time now, is to identify the why mm-hmm. of why a person is going to have a vagina. Is it yeah. for empowerment? Is it for sex? Is
3: mm-hmm. it for
2: control? Is it for whatever that reason? And I think to look at that person's overall health mm. and well-being is a must to really assess that because um, I think in Singapore, I think it was, they actually do psychological, you know, help for like a year before they even go near a set of dilators. So that was my only thing that I wish that I had a little bit of time.
1: Yeah. And apart from the feelings of, you know, shame and isolation, which... I'm so sorry you had to go through. What What are some of the other feelings that you had when you learnt what having MRKH really meant?
2: Um, well, I was already someone I don't know. Like it's a chicken in the egg because I was so young, I didn't know what my personality was quite. Mm-hmm. But I always remember being a bit of a dark and moody teenager, and I think that um, I I had always always suffered from depression from a young age I just didn't know what its name was Mm -hmm. and so my feelings around um that diagnosis I basically whether it was denial anger Mm. lack of control um again a lot of shame I lit I was like a moth to a flame like if you know and once I had made my vagina I was damn sure that I was going to prove my womanhood by using it and it's not uncommon for a lot of people to hit the promiscuity path to prove it. I am desirable. I am sexy. I can have sex. Look, look at me. Look at me. And yeah, yeah. Too much booze, too many boys, you know, sadly, um, content warning, trigger warning. I did suffer from um, self-harm mm-hmm. from the age of 16 to 24 and terrible relationship with food so I I kind of did it all (laughs) if I could if I could fuck up I kind of it was like oh yeah anyone anyone kind of want to validate why I'm a shit human
1: I'll be there yeah you've been been on a roller coaster it seems like which yeah again I'm just so sorry to hear but I think it's really great what you're doing talking about these things and making others feel like they're not alone if they're going through something similar I think it's really empowering and lots of kids have the talk with their parents as teenagers and so obviously this would have been a bit different for you so what did having these conversations about MRKH mean to you and and how did you sort of go through that because I imagine that would have been pretty tough
2: sort of the comment I think because you know um conversations with my parents even Mm pre-diagnosis oh you just again it's that thing of you just don't expect something like this to occur so you can't plan a conversation around it I think my poor mum you know, they don't. You don't know what to do with is this information. You really don't. Mm-hmm. And I did have, you know, I wondered why I hadn't had my period when I was taking my GCSEs. And I used to wear like that's my school exams. I used to wear like these massive sanitary pads. Yeah. And just like just in case. Yeah. And it never came. And then I do, you know, my poor dad. He actually took me to the London treatment, and he did everything he could to make it softer, mm-hmm. but unfortunately. I think because they didn't know how to navigate it they they didn't allow me but I didn't have the boundaries that they might have enforced because they didn't want to make me sadder so like I was almost let loose a little bit because of it um and that's not their fault but the the whole sex education thing you know at school and I did a fertility workshop last night with Vava Woom, a really yep. great platform awesome um we were talking about sort of like at school when you're taught you you are taught about the birds and the bees and I'm not just talking about like reproductive health I'm talking about gender and sexuality and identity and you know it might be different and I probably should do my homework but then you're taught there's only like there's only this or that and that's kind of like that's it if you're not those things then we don't, we don't have any more text for you.
1: Yeah. And it must feel so, you must feel a bit displaced when you hear those things about, you know, gender and what, what defines a woman. Cause you know, especially in school when it's so scientific, everything you're learning and, and all the discussion around gender is so new, you know, it's, it's only happened in the last five to 10 years. So yeah, I mean, it's it's great for people out there who are struggling with those feelings of displacement with their identity. But yeah, it's you wouldn't have had that, you know, you said it's been 20 years since you've been working through this stuff.
2: Oh, God, yeah. And I think it's, you know, the talk about body dysmorphia and, and things like that. And I, I've always had big boobs and they've really annoyed me for a lot of my life because I'm like, you're surplus to requirements. and I just you're like you're kind of you make me feel and I shouldn't you know you make me feel just a little bit you know like what the fuck am I supposed to do with them and like men are supposed to love them that's great but I don't love my body so men loving them isn't wasn't going to help me anyway Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I just couldn't figure out how to connect my identity to externally what was happening and I you know I've always said I've always been genetically female Mm -hmm. um But it's only in the last two years that I've allowed myself to really be okay with the word woman and feminine because that's something that I completely couldn't connect for a long time.
1: And when I was doing some reading about MRKH, I was reading a lot about infertility and you mentioned to me that infertility meant a grieving process and an acceptance process when you were a lot younger than a lot of women would have to go through when they find out they might be infertile. So can you tell me more about MRKH and infertility and how that works? And is is there a way for people with MRKH to have or conceive children apart from things like adoption?
2: Um, so I think the grieving process is interesting. I I have grieved multiple times and that's something that I exposed in my book. And I think, to be honest with you, when you are aware of your infertility or fertility challenges without sounding awful i just don't think it will ever truly leave 100 mm-hmm. percent um but it definitely surface. and so when i was 16 to be honest with you i don't know how yeah we play with dolls and that's actually so not right for me to mm-hmm. say that but we're yeah. typically we typically you know think well, well one day we might be a parent but right now what's really important is like sex and relationships and 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 boyfriends and girlfriends and experimenting and everything and so the kind of the whole fertility thing I put on the back burner it wasn't really a thing but I was I felt very odd when friends and family members for sure started having kids I just felt like this huge envy and this inability to be able to empathize and poor me why me Mm. but then throughout my life through certain situations one poignant one was when I decided and I had a surrogate so that's one of the big options is is
1: having surrogacy. Yeah, that's that's amazing. You can do that when you can put your um
2: the sperm and the egg into someone else's bun. That is pretty cool, and that's a big option. But it's not many people offer up their wombs. Like it's tricky. You, know, you yeah. might do it in a pla- You know, you might do it because you're feeling emotional to someone you know. But the it's expensive and it's complex and it's unsure. Um, but I was thinking about in my late thirties, no mid thirties about. Having a baby, and I was dating a guy in Bondi. <laughs> <Again>. <laughs> I was in a relationship that probably wasn't a relationship, but hey ho. I decided to go to the IVF clinic with my pregnant best friend, <laughs> and I didn't tell him because I thought I oh, it's a bit weird about like I mean he hasn't even called me his girlfriend yet, but I'm just going to plan. Oh god! Anyway. And hopefully he'll come around Hopefully he'll come around Yeah. And I went through this process, and and I've written about this quite a few times, but we were watching TV one night me and this guy and I said to I was plucking up the courage like I'm I'm thinking about having my eggs frozen and then I left it just thinking okay okay, okay yeah okay, okay. Yeah, silence, yeah, yeah silence silence and he said "Ali, I think that's a really good choice yeah for you and your future partner
3: oh, and in no. that moment
2: I know and I just kind of I just, I was mortified. And then I realized I didn't want to be a mother just because I wanted to be a mother. I wanted a family. I wanted everything that came with that. And I wasn't sure, like, everyone will determine their own level of extreme, Mm
1: -hmm. but I
2: just couldn't deal with pamphlets of sperm donors. I couldn't anticipate, like, I wanted the postcard. And then I decided to end that journey. And then only recently, going through like some personal stuff, with money and and my sort of situation here in England, I've had to forgo my fund, and um, that meant that. And I I named her. I named my child. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, and she. I mean, you know, I've yeah. always kind of she exists just in a different realm. So mm-hmm. the grieving process as a child, like it's mm-hmm. something that what child can really wrap their head around not being a mother. It's it's so complex.
1: It's so complex and I suppose it's something that you deal with at different stages in your life like when your friends first have kids or you know if you have a pregnancy scare like it's it's different every time that you're you're faced with it and I mean I don't have kids but it's something I'm thinking about more and more because I'm 30 this year and it's just like the whole freezing eggs thing I did an episode with um with a friend who f- chose to freeze her eggs this year and do egg donation so with the London egg bank you can freeze half for fr- oh, for free, or about one hundred and sixty quid, I think, and then you donate half, and that's how it's. Free, so because it is a very expensive process, but it was fascinating, and I was like, hmm, maybe this is well, something yeah. I should
2: do. No, and I think you know, I think it's all about options. I think it's all about creating options and knowing your and knowing the knowledge. And I think the you know what's kind of beneficial with MRKH is I had a you know I had a lot of time to prepare, unlike couples mm. who are discovering it at that point. So, on, not only you know one in eight people or couples will struggle with infertility, and yet. It remains so hush hush and so kind of taboo. Even people are not wanting to talk about it because it means that they're defected and there's a guilt there. Um, but now they are introducing, and this is going to be like a far off. Well, it's kind of far off. People are having uterus transplants, so healthy uterus goes into wow. person with not healthy or absent, and someone is able to carry the child. But I knew, yeah. like I used to back in my early twenties, I would do pregnancy tests. Just Mm. thinking, hoping. Maybe
1: somehow. (laughs)
2: Maybe they got it wrong. And then I've decided Mm, I've got even my own boundaries. I'm I'm very selective with the baby showers I go to. As much as I'm kind of, I feel like I'm really, 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 really not going to have a kid, I just think that there's some things I just don't need to put myself through.
1: And with the uterus um, transplant, is it an artificial uterus or is it from an organ donor? Organ
2: donor, so it
1: could wow. be a cadaver donor,
2: so a person who's passed away, or it could be um, a live donor, and typically they would pick or choose a family member, so a mother or a sister, because of the you know because of the genetic genetic DNA match, yeah, and hopefully you know the body not rejecting that organ, but even from selection to surgery, you could be looking at two years, then you got another year to wait so your body's not rejecting it, then you've got to go through. It's a four-, five-year process. It's not an overnight thing. I can't stress that enough for people who say, that's what I'm going to do. And it's like, well, it's a a wait. It's a wait. So, yeah. Yeah,
1: for sure.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
1: and you also spoke about grieving womanhood as a child and there's a lot of discussion around what being a normal in inverted commas woman means lately and especially with the trans right movement progressing over the last few years and and everything there what would you say in regards to this and what it means to be a normal woman
2: do you know I don't know whether it's a hugely, hugely, hugely complex issue or for me in my brain, I just need to simplify it for me because my whole the whole premise around my book was to take people on my journey about relationships and sex and destruction and humour and hope, but it was to kind of really look at how we define a woman and what does that word mean and i have spent a lot of time just i have talked to people within the intersex community the transgender community mm-hmm. and and looking at does a body part equal womanhood manhood does it allow if for me i've never felt like a woman because i didn't have a vagina
0: mm-hmm.
2: for a long time mm. but then there are people within the trans communities who would say potentially i I don't actually need that body part. I just need to express myself and be honest and true with how my gender identity is landing with me. And I know that's a simplification. But at the moment, I just think the complexity of fear and social conformity and hypocrisy and Mm -hmm. anger and inability to understand. And I truly, truly believe that the only thing that we can really guarantee is normal is difference. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's, I mean, I'm, I'm not a campaigner and I wouldn't claim to be. It's not my place to to do that. Mm-hmm. But I think it's so incredibly sad that our inability to truly feel comfortable and safe, the irony. Yeah, I uh, even within my book, I thought, oh, do you know what? I'm going to have a really profound answer. Mm-hmm. And then it just came down to me about do I do I like myself <laughs> do I even like do I actually even like myself and do I have acceptance for myself and do I have acceptance for other people
3: mm-hmm. and that for
2: me is just a, a starting point but the, I mean I've worked closely with the intersex community they're huge advocates um they're fierce in what they're doing and they really they are altering the narrative and yeah. I, I think by joining with communities like that I used to be we have to be very clear MRK is this and AIS is this and this and this and I'm like no this is all fucking bullshit we've all lived with the same pain and stigma to a degree like we have to band forces and try to change this narrative and it is changing slowly over time but we know that even governments are choosing rights of uteruses Mm -hmm. like it's just one minute I think we're progressive and the next minute we're so so archaic.
1: Yeah, I think it's something that people think once we achieve equality in certain areas or we pass laws, you know, there's no going backwards and it's sort of like, okay, we won, now let's start the next thing. But in America, you know, trans rights have actually taken quite a back step in terms of legislation in the last couple of years, which is actually really scary because you think of how far women have come, how far we've come with, you know, Black Lives Matter and you know all the different movements that are going on for for human rights and you just wonder how far back. Could it go if we stopped fighting for these things?
2: Well, this is the thing, isn't it? And I don't think there'll ever be a a, a stopping of the fighting. But I just think that the incremental change is is exactly that. You know, I remember the Roe versus Wade and people, you know, talking about. I mean, this is a whole other rabbit hole, but talking about abortion and they're like, "Well, what do you feel about it?" And I was like, "Do you know what? I just have to accept that people need choice and options because that's all I've ever wanted." Yeah, that's all I've ever wanted for myself. So, yes, but I am pleased. The narrative
1: is is louder
2: now. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And was there a process of unlearning what being a woman means? Because I think, like you said, it is such a complicated issue. And being a woman isn't just you know putting on makeup and dressing nice and wearing high heels and all of those stereotypical things. There's so much more to it, and it's it's entrenched in our identity. Was there a process of you? as a teenager unlearning what a woman means because also when you're a teenager you know you start going out and you start buying a bra and you do you get your period and all these things that we're told as children when these things happen you will officially be a woman so Mm. so what was that process like?
2: Unlearning to be a woman well I didn't actually learn how to be one um for a long time and and I was I really was a a walking contradiction. Um, I I know that it wasn't about makeup, but for me externally, that was all I kind of had. And the whole thing around MRKH has yes been the the grief and the loss of never having a child to raise, and um, having that experience of kicks in belly and labour, and it gets very very lonely not having a child, especially as you get older because there's more time. But I think. For me, it was all around sex and relationships, and it, and because I developed such a bad relationship with my body, and in turn, men. Um, I, as I said, I would have really, really um, destructive, toxic, both emotional and physically abusive relationships for a very long time because I believed that that was all I was worth and I felt that if someone took me on or was to be with me I should be grateful because Uh, I'm coming less than Mm -hmm. um you know I remember people ex-boyfriends saying to me in company of friends you know is there any wonder that I don't want to fuck that or is there any wonder why I don't want to marry that And these were things that were repeated over time because I allowed them. Like I I didn't believe I was worth anymore. Um, And so for me having to, I never, I didn't unlearn how to be, because I don't think I ever felt like one. I honestly don't. I know that I had the body parts and I know that that goes into that part. And if you make the, the right noise and move in the right way, then great, you're having sex. But it meant nothing. It absolutely meant nothing. And then. I think when I left, you know, when I developed the charity and developed my advocacy work and I really started to break that down, it's only probably in the last five years that I've truly, truly understood what it means to be desired and what it means to be worth it because I was so, so tired of feeling like a passenger in life and just letting all this shit happen to me. And I just realized, Ali, you know, you're not really owed anything. First yeah, point, you know, and I think it's about time that you. um I think it's about time that you be a bit more accountable for your happiness,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and so it's been a real work in progress, like sober sex and mm-hmm. um allowing myself to be fancied, and even like having a bit of a relationship with my boobs. Like, mm-hmm. okay, they could be <laughs> sexy. They could be sexy. I should like, you know, they just used to get like, and all or yoga was just like hellish with a big, with big boobs, but um and no unfortunately you know uh, not unfortunately and fortunately i've you know found someone um in the last year or so who is a really kind compassionate that's amazing lovely human being who um it, it kind of you know i always say it makes sense with him so i don't regret any part of my past because it has led me to this incredible life of charity, yeah. advocacy, writing, you know, change
1: and all that kind of stuff. So I'm so glad that you've, you know, you're feeling more positive about it now and you've found someone. What would you say to people out there, not not just people with MRKH, but anyone who might be struggling with feelings of, you know, being different or feeling like they don't fit in or they don't slot into a particular category? What would you say in regards to helping people go on?
2: I think there are so many people if I don't want to ever draw happiness on the fact that people might be hurting yeah there are so many people out there who do not fit into a drop-down box if we really scratch the surface and so whilst difference might feel so lonely and so isolating if you can use this wonderful power of the internet to try to draw out people who understand you and you can connect with it's like I sent one email looking for help and that help didn't exist but what it did exist was an opportunity for me to grow an organization in Australia for people like me and the power of this was it wasn't money it wasn't fancy conferences it yeah. was literally people being able to talk to another person and the we talk about vulnerability and we talk about courage and how they're measuring like in par. But I think just having a conversation with a trusted person, because there are so many people out there who are battling yeah. something that doesn't feel normal. And the truth of the matter is everyone has a fucking story that they're probably they're probably battling with. So I think just join forces with the the black sheeps of society because they're probably, you know, the most courageous, brave ones. they
1: And you have been so courageous and brave in sharing your story here. Thank you so, so much for coming on. I definitely learnt so much today from you, and I'm hoping everyone listening did as well.
2: It was really great, and I think because, I mean, I love your selection of questions. I really do. They kind of make me think a lot, actually. So now I'm going to go away and go, skip and go, oh, my God, I'm a woman. And I mean that. I mean (laughs) that. I've waited a long time to say those words to myself, so... Thank you so much, Molly. and hopefully
1: this is good practice for when you launch your own podcast as well.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, like you're great. You're honestly <laughs> awesome. And it, yeah, let's let's hope, let's hope. But thank you so much.
1: I hope you enjoyed my chat with Ali. Please let me know on my Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, whatever. If you have any stories or thoughts of your own to share, love and elbow taps. Peace.